Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you indeed are our precious Savior through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray now that as we turn to your word that you would continue to foster growth within us, that we would be receptive to you and that you would conform us into the likeness of our Savior. For the sake of our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, as we continue in our series, you've probably heard the old adage that there's no perfect church, and if you happen to find one, you shouldn't join there because it won't be perfect anymore. (laughs) Well, the church in Corinth was far from perfect. Every church has flaws, ours included, because people are flawed, but not all flaws are equal. Some flaws have a surface component to them, and other flaws are so deep that they actually undermine the message that the church is proclaiming. Far worse than poor music or a lack of hospitality or a lack of people who are willing to serve or a boring preacher, for the Corinthians, the lack of forgiveness was a fatal flaw in the church. And so Paul addresses it, and as he addresses this unforgiveness, he reminds us of some very important truths for ourselves as well. And so follow along as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. This is what Paul says. He says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. You should rather turn to forgive and and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. The underlying context of this passage and and much of this first part of the book of 2 Corinthians is that Timothy had reported back to Paul what was happening in Corinth. And Paul had visited them at some point. They had expected him to visit again. He had not yet come again. Instead, he had written them a letter. But when he came to visit the first time, some people openly opposed him in front of the whole church, in front of the entire family. They stood up and opposed the messenger and the message. We don't know all of the details of the opposition. We don't know exactly what was said. But... There are some things that we can decipher from this passage in the surrounding context of 2 Corinthians. We know that the offense was most likely not theological in nature because Paul always addresses theological offenses very clearly and directly. We know that the whole church was affected, as is mentioned in what we read today, even though there's one person who was the primary offender. 
And this offense caused Paul great consternation to a point of writing to them in tears. However, the pain that was in the church was even greater than the pain that Paul himself experienced. It affected all of them. And when you have church conflict, it affects everyone. Don't you know that to be true? And so what we see that as Paul has begun to address this, as he addressed it in the book of 1 Corinthians, and now he addresses it again, we see, just fast-forwarding a little bit to chapter 7, the nature of grief and repentance, as he writes this, in verse 8 of chapter 7, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, that's the letter we call 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And so here's what's happening. There's a big time church conflict. There's somebody that opposes the apostle in front of everybody. Some people followed that opposer. But over the course of time, many of them repented. They repented from a variety of sins that were being addressed in the context of the church, including this rebellion. And it's important to pause and to consider for a minute what exactly they were repenting from. It'd be easy to say or to write this off as just a mere personality conflict. Perhaps we would say, well, maybe they just didn't like the guy. Or maybe he offended their political affiliation. And we know that that's a big no-no today. Or perhaps maybe he made some changes in the church and their feelings were hurt. But this is far greater than a mere personality conflict or their feelings being hurt. I think they probably repented from at least three things. They repented for their rejection of the message. When they rejected the messenger, they also rejected the message. And the message that Paul was bringing to them was the very core of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and its implications for how they would live their life. Sometimes people don't like those implications. They like the message, but they don't like the implications. Sometimes we don't like the implications. <laughs> we like the idea of forgiveness and receiving forgiveness, but we might not like what it means for how we live faithfully day in and day out. But what repentance truly means is that you see the truth of the gospel and then you live in a, matter that, in a manner that's in accordance with those implications of the gospel. And so we see that they repented. The second thing they repented from was just quite obviously slander, false accusation, words that were toxic, that decimated the community life of the church. And it's just a very simple and important reminder for each and every one of us to be careful about our words and what our words can do, not only in attacking other people, but also in decimating the community life 
of the family of God. And I think the third thing that they repented from and that Paul is working very hard at to bring them back to in 2 Corinthians is that they're repenting from rejecting the authority that God has placed over them. Paul was their spiritual authority. And they had rebelled against their spiritual authority. And as a result, they needed to repent. It's important for us to consider because God places authority over us in pretty much every sphere of our life. <laughs> and we live in a time right now, the age of the individual, where we are constantly looking for ways to dismiss or to reject those authorities in the different spheres of our life. And when we reject the authorities that God has placed over us, what do we do in turn? We place ourselves as the ultimate authority. And if you become the ultimate authority for everything in your life, then you are in a very, very dangerous place. And so we have a long conversation, no doubt, about healthy versus unhealthy authority, godly authority versus ungodly authority. But suffice it to say that when it comes to your spiritual life, Spiritual authority that God places over each and every one of us is not placed there for our harm. The authority that God places over you, whether that be the elders of a church or whether that be ultimately the rest of the congregation in our church polity as well, that's not to be your cosmic killjoy. <laughs> it's actually just the opposite. God places authority over us for our good. It doesn't always feel like it's for our good in the moment. Didn't feel like it was for the good of the Corinthians when they rebelled against the authority above them. But they repented. They embraced the gospel. They embraced its implications. And they embraced the authority over them. So that is the lay of the land of what's happening here. And we see in the middle of this that the church itself as an authority over the individual, that the whole body of the church exercises what we might call discipline. In the midst of great pain, many repented. And in doing so, it would appear that these people exercised church discipline on the man who led the rebellion, and as a result, they cast him out of the church. Church discipline is an important part of the commitment that Christians make to each other. And it's something that all healthy churches practice at some point or another. Something that we practice at Old North. And the question at hand in church discipline is this. What happens? What's a church supposed to do when someone claims to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, but they don't live like a follower of Jesus. In other words, what happens when someone says, I embrace Jesus as my Savior, but I also want to embrace a way of life that engages in ongoing and persistent and unrepentant sin? We're not talking about a slip-up in sin. We're not talking about even the struggle that we have with sin because every single one of us struggles with sin. We're talking about the person who says, 
I've heard what God says in the Bible. I don't care. (laughs) I am going to do what I want to do regardless of what God says. And in this sense, this person is not fighting against sin in their life anymore. They're embracing it as an ongoing part of their life. And the result is that they claim Jesus as their savior, but they live in ongoing opposition to him. They claim the church as their family, but they live in ongoing opposition to what that very church is trying to accomplish. And the result is that no longer does the person or the family have a reputation that points to the glory and magnificence of God. Instead, it's tarnished by those who live in opposition to him. And so what does a church do when its members are committing to one another to say, we are going to pursue faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ as our way of life, but there's somebody among them that's saying, I'm not going to pursue the same thing, but I want all of the benefits attached to what you're doing. At that moment, the church engages in a process of discipline. And both Jesus and the Apostle Paul give instruction as to what church discipline looks like. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives an outline for it. He, just in summary, says, if your brother sins against you, then go to your brother privately and seek to be reconciled with him. And if he refuses to listen, step two is that you go back with another person and you engage or address the issue at hand, seeking to win over your brother. But if that person refuses to listen again, Jesus says in Matthew 18 to tell it to the church, to tell it to the whole family, and treat that person as a Gentile or a tax collector. That is to say that if the person refuses to repent of their sin, if if they've been shown privately, gently, clearly that this is the way that God calls us to live and they're saying, I don't care. I'm going to do this anyway. I'm going to live in my sin anyway. I'm going to embrace it anyway. Jesus says that that person is to be treated like someone who is not of the family of faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 gives a similar description. In 1 Corinthians 5, you might remember the context. A man in the church is sleeping with his father's wife. Everybody knows it. Nobody's doing anything about it. And so Paul writes to them and he says, this is an egregious sin and why aren't you addressing it? And so he gives them this description. He says, address the sin of the offender instead of allowing it or boasting it, boasting in it. If that person refuses to repent, Paul says, cast them out of the church. Don't associate with them because they are bearing the name of brother, but engaging in the exact opposite behavior. And then he says the goal of casting them out, and he uses some very, very serious language. He says, cast them out and hand them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh that their soul would be saved. I want to talk about vivid imagery. 
sort of the greatest spiritual consequence. What he means by that is, is that when you say, when you no longer affirm that this person is a brother or sister in the Lord, when you cast them out, he's saying there's an opportunity at hand for the destruction of their flesh, for the fleshly sin and desires that they have to be broken down and destroyed because they feel the pressure and the pain and ultimately that they would be saved, that they would repent, that they would be restored. And so the goal of church discipline is the preservation of God's people and their ability to magnify the glory of God and the restoration of the individual. Discipline in this sense, like all forms of discipline in your life, is not punitive action only. Discipline whether it's discipline in your diet, <laughs> discipline in the church, the discipline of your children, the discipline in your work. Discipline is painful. It nearly always comes with a level of pain. But discipline is motivated always by a greater good. And here the good is the glory of God in the church and the good of the person and their life. Now, we should pause right there and say, if that's true, because nobody really wants to talk about discipline, church discipline. Somebody asked me this morning, what's the sermon? And I said, I get to talk about church discipline. And they said, oh, great. <laughs> I said, yeah, it is great. You know why? Because you should want discipline in your life. You should want, if God is truly the most valuable thing, and if your salvation is the greatest gift that you have, and you, in a moment of weakness, a season of blindness, a season of self-centeredness and sin, a season that every single one of us has at one point or another, if you embrace a life that is contrary to the greatest thing, the thing that is absolutely the best for you, you should want someone to come alongside of you and say, don't go that way. <laughs> Go this way. If your spouse starts eating McDonald's three meals a day, you should say, you're going to die. <laughs> I saw the documentary. That guy didn't end up well. Don't go that way. Go this way. And I'm not going to let you eat McDonald's at the dinner table with the rest of the family. Church discipline is something that we should all want because it says we hold the highest thing in the highest regard and there are people around us who love us enough to help us. I've seen it happen many times. I can give you story after story. I think of one uh, early in my ministry at my first church shortly after meeting a distinguished gentleman from the south. He said to me, and I think it was our very first conversation, Pastor, I just want you to know I was under church discipline a number of years ago. Okay, this conversation's about to get real. He said, it saved my life. The man was a Christian. He was enjoying a growing career and success and enjoyed the money that came with that success. The desire to have more overtook him and it led him to do a number of things, including embezzle money from his employer. And after he was caught, 
He was defiant. And he was unrepentant. And over the course of time and conversation that was clear and gentle at times and stern at other times and pleading with him at other times, he was still calloused to the lifestyle that he was embracing. And the church disciplined him publicly and formally. But God did his work in this man's heart. The man repented to God. The man repented to his church family. He was fully restored in the midst of the church. He served the Lord actively for many years after that, and he had great joy as he did. His words, not mine, he would have never repented unless the church engaged in that godly pressure of discipline. God knows what he's doing when he instills this type of dynamic. And it looks like here in the book of 2 Corinthians that we see that the church has gone through this kind of discipline and they cast the, the person out of the church. They had deemed that he wasn't living in a manner that was consistent with the gospel. They cast him out of the fellowship. Verse 6 says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. And guess what? It worked. <laughs> the man repented. He apologized for his sin. He apologized for publicly opposing the messenger of the gospel and the message of the gospel. But there was still a really big problem. The problem now wasn't with the man. The problem was with the church. They didn't want to forgive him. They wanted to keep him in jail forever. You know, a lack of forgiveness, even in the midst of great hurt, points to the fact that this church didn't fully understand how the gospel is to be practiced in its community. They embraced the gospel as an idea. They embraced the gospel as it applied to their individual lives. But they didn't embrace the gospel in the practice of forgiving this man who had committed this grievous sin. I think of the story of one night in a church service how a young woman responded to the gospel. She put her faith in the Lord Jesus as her Savior. She had a very rough past that included alcohol abuse and drugs and even prostitution. But God saved her, and the change was evident. And as time, she became a faithful member of that local church family, and she eventually became involved in ministry, serving the Lord and teaching young children. And it wasn't too long after that that this now faithful young woman caught the eye and the heart of a man, a young man in the church, the pastor's son. And the relationship grew and they fell in love and they began to make plans to be married and that's when the problems began because the church members began to argue about the matter. They began to gossip behind closed doors. Half the church didn't think that a woman with a past like hers would be suitable for this man. He was the pastor's son. And at a meeting, the rumbling and whispering that was happening behind closed doors bubbled out 
to the surface. As people made arguments and tensions increased and the situation became completely out of hand. The young woman became so very upset about all the things being brought up about her past and as she began to cry, the pastor's son could not bear it any longer and so he stood up to speak. And the hush fell over the room and he said boldly and confidently, my fiance's past is not what's on trial here. What you are questioning is the ability of the blood of Jesus to wash away sin. Today, you've put the blood of Jesus on trial. So does it wash away sin or doesn't it? And the whole church began to weep as they realized that they had been slandering not the woman but the blood of Jesus Christ. Because forgiveness is foundational to the gospel. And so Paul says in verses 7 and 8, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Here's what he's getting at. Christians display the power of God when they receive forgiveness from God, but they also display this power of God when they give forgiveness to each other. The power of God is displayed in your life when you receive the forgiveness that he gives you, but also when you give forgiveness to the other people around you. And that points us, I think, to the forgiveness that in a church family like our church family points to the power of God, but it reminds that each and every one of us is complicit in this forgiveness because forgiveness is not primarily a corporate or an institutional action. Forgiveness is an action of each and every person. And forgiveness is not primarily something that is done when you feel like it. <laughs> It's not primarily something that's done when you feel good about it. In fact, almost always the opposite is true. Forgiveness is a conscious choice that you make even though you don't feel like it because someone has offended you, someone has hurt you, someone has put you in the midst of anger or pain. But Jesus teaches us to pray about this choice of forgiveness. He says this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, in the Lord's prayer... We pray, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And so here's the question. How are you doing at forgiving? <laughs> How are you doing with that person that hurt you? Sometimes many years ago. Sometimes just a couple hours ago. Some of us only want to forgive when there's certain conditions attached. Old Joe was dying. For years, he had been at odds with Bill, who was formerly one of his best friends. He wanted to straighten some things out with Bill, and so he sent word for Bill to come and see him. And when Bill arrived, Joe told him that 
he was afraid to go into eternity with such bad feelings between the two of them. And so he very reluctantly and with great effort apologized to Bill for the things that he had said and he had done. He also reassured Bill that he forgave his offenses as well. And after a beautiful few moments, everything seemed fine. And as Bill turned to leave, and as he was walking out near the door, Joe called out to him, But just remember, if I get better, all of this doesn't count. But forgiveness, true forgiveness, leaves no room for conditions. <laughs> Some of us remember the words of Mark eleven twenty five, where Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. There are plenty of people, maybe some in this room, that don't really want to get all that close to other people because we don't want to get hurt or offended or because we want to control our own reality. And if we don't get too close to people, then people won't hurt us and then we won't have to forgive them. I think of the German philosopher Schopenhauer who compared the human race with a bunch of porcupines huddling together in a cold, win cold winter night. He said this, he said, the colder it gets outside, the more we huddle together for warmth. But the closer we get to one another, the more we hurt one another with our sharp quills. And in the lonely night of Earth's winter, eventually we begin to drift apart and wander out on our own and freeze to death in our loneliness. But Christ has given us another alternative to forgive each other for the pokes that we receive. And that allows us to stay together and to stay warm. Colossians chapter 3 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, Forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Christians display the power of God when they receive forgiveness from God and when they give forgiveness to each other. Do you have anyone that you need to forgive? Do you have anyone that you are embittered toward? Someone who's hurt you. Someone who has been so distasteful to you that you want nothing to do with them. You have a choice that you can make. Forgiveness doesn't just happen. You have to choose it. And it doesn't just happen when you feel like it. It often happens when you don't. And the call is to forgive them. Because that's where God's power is found. And when you experience that kind of power, you actually experience with it an incredible freedom because the weight of unforgiveness on your back is more profound than you probably realize. I think of this power and this freedom as I close this morning with an account of 
the Korean War and a Christian who was arrested by the communists and sentenced to death. And when the young communist officer learned that the Christian prisoner had operated an orphanage, he spared the man, but someone still had to die. And so he sentenced his 19-year-old son to be executed in his place. The father was devastated. His son was his pride and joy. He would never, ever, ever have traded his life for his son's life. And anger welled up in the heart of the man against his persecutors and against this young officer who had spared him by making this fateful trade. After the war was over, the officer was tried and condemned for his crime. After many months of struggle in his heart, the man whose son had died decided to come to the court that day to observe and possibly say his piece at the officer's trial. And as he watched, God had been working. And as he rose to speak, you could imagine the suspense in the courtroom as thick as a cloud cover over in Ohio autumn day. What would this guy say? How would he confront the man who had his son killed, who had a, torn out a piece of his heart and taken his boy? And to everyone's surprise, the man pleaded for the young communist to be spared and to be released into his care because he had forgiven him. And the loss of one young man, as painful and devastating as it would be, his own son, did not warrant the death of another who would become like a son. This man took his son's killer into his home. He led him to Christ. The former communist would later become a pastor who would proclaim the very forgiveness that he had received and was compelled now to give. And that is the power of God that happens through forgiveness. Christians, you display God's power when you receive forgiveness from him and when you give forgiveness to each other. And so the call today is to forgive. Let's pray. Father, I know that in a room this size that there are some who are holding unforgiveness because hurt is profound, because sin is egregious, because all of the nuances of a situation make it very difficult to forgive. And I pray today that you would release them. I ask God that you in your power, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to forgive those who have sinned against you and sinned against us. God, I ask today that you would be preparing our hearts for forgiveness when the next offense comes, that we would be reflections of the gospel, that we would initiate love, that we would be the type of people who live in this community together in an ongoing way, 
experiencing the warmth of your presence, even in the midst of incidental or sometimes intentional pricking of each other. Strengthen your family, we pray, and do it through forgiveness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.